Bloomberg Intelligence is brought to you by CME Group, the world's leading derivatives marketplace, offering the widest range of global benchmark products across all major asset classes. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Guess who just darkened Eric the door? Eric Schatzker is in the studio. I guess Paul Singer is an active guy, right? But I always thought of Elliot as a distressed investor because Hans Humes like cut his teeth there with Argentina. Elliot certainly started out that way. I'd say Elliot is highly opportunistic more than anything else. They make long-only bets as well. Yes, they function. They have an, an activist profile. They certainly throw their weight around. Um, but yes, I would say that uh, bare-knuckled distressed investing is one of their specialties. That's not why you're in here, though. It's no. not. It's not. We're here. We got something else to talk about. So uh, Ray Dalio, um, you broke the story when he, was, when he officially announced he was Back leaving. in October, yes. Ray Dalio, after 12 years of trying, finally let go of the reins of Bridgewater. <laughs> And we've been waiting for five months to find out what the new generation of leadership under the CEO Nir Bardea, former Israeli military guy, really? was going to do. And now we know. So, what's, so what are the details? Let us in. There is a lot happening, and it is happening on a very accelerated timetable. The first thing people are going to notice and find surprising is that Bridgewater is cutting some jobs. The firm employs about 1,300 people. And it's getting rid of about 100. And not all of those people are junior folks. There will be some senior people as well. Why? Because it wants to deploy those resources. There isn't an infinite amount of money, even though Bridgewater is a big and very profitable firm, into new initiatives. And we'll talk about those. The other thing that's really worth mentioning is that Bridgewater is capping the size of its so-called flagship hedge fund strategy. This is, it has a name, Pure Alpha. And it is the product, the hedge fund product that Bridgewater offers its clients. The idea is that it will, over time, generate excess return. In other words, alpha, hence pure alpha. <laughs> um, Bridgewater, for so many years, defied the laws of hedge fund gravity. The conventional wisdom was always that strategies outside of equities were capacity constrained. Some strategies in things like distressed credit are very capacity constrained. There just isn't that much to do. So that means macro is pretty money, big, they but can't make, if they have too much money, they can't put it to work. Uh, they can't generate high enough returns. Yeah. Yet, as I say, Bridgewater defied gravity because its two principal strategies, Pure Alpha and the risk parity strategy called All Weather, hoovered up assets at an unbelievable pace. In 2011, it crossed $100 billion in total assets. And then... More recently, it has been north of 150. Wow. And now, you know, the natural laws of the universe appear to be taking hold. Bridgewater's performance during the 2010s was, you know, uh, this is an understatement, uninspiring. And they've gone, you know, back to the well, look, gave themselves a hard look in the mirror and recognized that things had to change. 
The inference I can draw from my reporting is that it was harder to change while Ray was still there. He'd built the firm. He'd created its unusual, some would say odd, culture. Um, Ultra-transparency. And he was, as any founder would be, very attached to a certain way of doing things. Now he's gone. A much younger generation of leadership is in charge. And you can also infer that they've been chomping at the bit because here are some things that they're doing that it would have been very difficult to see Bridgewater do uh, if Ray were still in command. All right, Eric. So we have, as you mentioned, the new chief executive officer, Nir Bardea. That's correct. Former what, Israeli military guy, as I mentioned. Is he was really a platoon interesting. leader. Interesting. Um, what does what does he and his new team, what are they looking to do in terms of new initiatives, changes? Yes, we need to get into this. There's four areas they're pushing ahead in. One is Asia. They want a bigger footprint in Asia. They're adding people in Singapore. They want to get closer to some of the institutional clients there. You can draw some conclusions about who those might be. GIC, for example, Tomasic, both sovereign Wasn't wealth Ray funds Dalio himself in like in love with China as well? Ray said some controversial things about China. And I talked to Nier about China. Their position on China is not ideological. They want to be able to invest in China and to be able to offer clients exposure to Asia. Why? Because half of the world's economy is driven by Chinese monetary policy and Chinese credit creation. And China and Asia more broadly are generating, are adding to global GDP at double the rate the US and Europe are. So it's a place they simply have to be. Forget about anything that Ray may have said or things that people might believe, have believed about his views on China. So Asia is number one. They want to be much bigger in equities, specifically long-only equities. This is something their clients want. And it's not a long, short equity fund. What they're doing is taking their macro views. This is the specialty at Bridgewater, the so-called compounded understanding that they've built over 47 years and expressing it through equities. So if pure alpha, again, the flagship strategy, would have shorted bonds, shorted treasuries, in if it anticipated a rising rate environment, a long-only equity strategy would have minimized its exposure to interest rate-sensitive stocks. Or similarly, if Pure Alpha was going to go long copper because it believed copper prices were going to rise and industrial production was going to boom, the long-only equity strategy, again, expressing a macro view, would buy copper miners. The third area, machine learning and artificial intelligence. This go. is not a chat GBT thing. Bridgewater <laughs> has been experimenting for a decade with these tools, but it now wants to build them out, engineer something that it can put to work, uh, making investment decisions. Again, humans still part of the picture. And finally, sustainability. You'll recall that Karen uh, Carniel Tambor, only 37 years old, was recently elevated from co-chief of sustainability to co-CIO at Bridgewater. And clearly, you know, her hand, uh, her fingerprints are on some of this. Bridgewater is, has, to, has to respond to client demand for more products and sustainability. And they want to do sustainability and equities, and they want to generate, up until now, their sustainability product has been beta-driven. They, they want alpha strategies in sustainability, and they want to express their views on sustainability similarly in equities. Four areas in which Bridgewater believes it can amass billions upon billions of dollars, and if it's successful, they'll ultimately be less reliant on what we were talking about before, pure alpha 
and all weather. That's interesting. Vanguard just did a study on its ESG products and showed uh, they had no outperformance versus, I guess. Well, Vanguard is, a, let's not forget, apart from the sub-advised funds at Vanguard, Vanguard is a beta shop, right? Vanguard is, is the pioneer of indexing. They're the market. Yeah. And I'm not disputing Vanguard's conclusions. Right. What I am saying, and what's clear to me, is that clients, for better or for worse, want Bridgewater to offer them more in sustainability. The clients might be wrong. That's for us to find out over time. It's fascinating that people want to put their money there still after the backlash that we've seen, you know, against, uh, you know, Larry Fink and and BlackRock. What about the radical transparency that, um, to me, defined Bridgewater's culture I only know it, obviously, through reading your reporting, for the most part. But <laughs> That's uh, changing. Is, is that going to change? Sure, it's because changing. Because it seems like they weren't terribly transparent about Dalio's fight for more money on his way out. Well, there are people in Bridgewater who would dispute the account that you've, you're referring to in another publication. Yes. Um, but the culture is changing. Of course it's changing. There are younger people in charge now. They're no longer so attached to the pain buttons that, you know, these 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 apps, if you will, that uh, Bridgewater developed under Ray, the baseball cards that, you know, tried to in- in- capture, you know, somebody's entire personality and every decision he might make yep. in the years ahead. Those things still exist. Are they as popular as, as frequently utilized today? Hard for me to know. I'm not inside right. the firm, but the distinct impression I get is that Bridgewater has moved on from some of that stuff, and they were definitely softening the approach that they took to designing things like the baseball cards even before Ray left the firm. All right, Eric, great, great stuff. Uh, One of the top red stories on the Bloomberg terminal will be for the entire day, I predict. Uh, Eric Schatzker, Bloomberg News, excellent reporting. Uh, Green B, for those who know, uh, about Bridgewater, Ray Dalio, the changes there. Good stuff. We appreciate Eric being in our studio. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options markets across all major asset classes. Visit your online broker and get started. See what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. All right, we want to get into the private equity space, uh, one of my favorite spaces. And quite frankly, I've been on Wall Street for 30 years. I kind of feel like it's the last place 
where you can make outsized returns. That's just my personal opinion. Hedge fund business game over uh, traditional Wall Street game over uh, in terms of making outsized returns. And that's why I like it. If I were a young person, I'd be going into private equity right away. Andrea Auerbach joins us. She's head of private investments at Cambridge Associates. Uh, she gets a gold star because she is live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Andrea, talk to us about the last... I don't know, three or four years, the whole world's been upside down, markets all over the place. Now we've got a Federal Reserve raising rates and all this kind of stuff. From the private equity space, just give us, a, when you go talk to clients, how do you frame up the last few years? Wonderful question, typically, and good morning, big, by the way. Big question. Big question, yeah. Good morning to you as well. Um, Typically, when folks are asking us about what's happening in the private equity space, I, I kind of roll it back a, a few decades. Okay. Right. So, the, so as as you started out with your morning comments, private equity um, is an in, has only been institutionalizing since the 80s. It's basically 40 years old. I wish I were 40 years old again. <laughs> um, Me and too. so It's constantly evolving. And so what you've been seeing in the last couple of years is really building off of a lot of phases that the industry has already moved through. Leveraged buyouts are now referred to fondly as private equity, mm -hmm. right? Little euphemism twist there. But part of the reasons for that is that private equity isn't just about applying a lot of leverage to a company anymore. It's, it's immensely diversified space and ecosystem. So it's not just the one thing people tend to think about. Well, one thing sense. I think about, um, and I've spent the last six years going to the super return conference in Berlin is just how much money mm. private equity has amassed. You know, every year that I went, it was a new um, impossible to understand figure, like 1.7 trillion, <laughs> and then it was 2.3 trillion, and just so much dry powder that I always wondered, you know, with that much money chasing the same assets, is it possible to get a decent price? Is that still the case that private equity has so much cash, um, and is it, just impossible for them to put it to work? So the answer to that, so the, the big the big headline number that you just mentioned is immense, but it breaks down pretty quickly into different categories, right? So as we mentioned, private equity has been evolving over decades, and so there are 5,000 GPs walking around have, who have raised some part of that one point trillion number that you gave us, and they're trying to deploy it within the space that they're occupying, right? So when you break down that overhang that you talk about, and we define that I like to think we're the first to define it, actually, if I'm being honest. At many, Cambridge Associates. Yes, many moons ago. Um, half of that belongs to funds that have $5 billion or more in capital under management, right? And so a lot of the larger funds have the big money, the more money, more problem problem, which is they're all maybe looking for a smaller group of assets, whereas there's another cohort which might have less than a billion in capital under management, and they have... A, a broader ecosystem to play in and go find a company. And don't forget, there's something like six million private businesses in the U.S. They're not all private private equity owned yet, right? All right. So, 2022, the 60/40 portfolio for most investors crushed. You couldn't make money anywhere. This year, well, you could make money if you owned a, a barrel of oil in alternative assets. Well, well Lisa Bromitz has a barrel of in oil rates. in her apartment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there were places where people knocked it out of the park, right? And yeah, but most 60/40 folks, most it, it did not. So tough times. You come here to 2023. Now we've got a Fed Reserve kind of reversing, raising rates. People are concerned. What's the private equity market like today? What are you telling clients? What are you hearing from your clients? As you'd, as you'd asked, right now the private equity market is sort of on on pause, right? Okay. Just like most most markets, most folks who want to do a transaction, like 
I don't know how to forecast what's about to happen and its impact on the companies I want to buy. And if I can't, if I can't forecast, I can't come up with an accurate valuation that I'm willing to pay. And I also don't know how these companies are going to perform because a lot of unknowns just became known over the last year or so, right? And so the market itself, transaction volumes have been on pause waiting to sort of sort itself out. I think there's a lot of pent up transaction volume that will start to come to market once folks decide and settle out like this is our go forward operating environment. So it's been on pause right now. And it's sort of like, you know, you check your belongings. Do I have my wallet, my keys? Are, are the companies that I own currently, are they performing okay given a lot of the changes that have been coming at us all, right? Higher, higher inflation, higher interest rates, you know, difficulty finding good labor, difficulty getting your supply chain moving, all those things. So I think that the industry itself has been a little bit on pause, check your belongings, before maybe moving forward into this environment with, an, with a plan. But 60, 40 people, for the most part, are like, you know, me and Eric, retail guys, who until <laughs> recently haven't had access to alternative assets. Paul is probably an accredited investor, so he could. <laughs> We've had more and more guests on that are giving access to um, private investments to retail investors in various ways with various platforms. Is that growing in private uh, equity as well? Um, yes, and one of the reasons for this is there's a long-term there's a long-term trend, right? So when my dad, if you will, was 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 actively working, he was receiving a pension, right? Now, lucky, I know exactly. <laughs> And a lot of pensions, because they were more institutionally managed by a centralized, a centralized team, they were pursuing private investments. And so a lot of our, our dads, I guess, and, and moms could benefit from having some exposure to alts in their retirement program. Now, I'm of a different generation. I'm in the 401k class, right? right? And so 401ks typically don't have access to privates. One of, the, one of the classic, hey, I want some of that is the returns of privates have stood the test of time over a 40-year period, still a very productive returning asset class. And I think a lot of folks who don't have access to pensions anymore would like some access to this asset class. And then enter stage left, private equity firms and others trying to figure out how to provide exposure to private investments in an appropriate way to a 401k investor or to a retail investor. And that's that And regulators yeah. must and regulators must uh, want to help out as well because it's just really not fair. Um, if you're a 401 now we're a whole generation of 401k people, right? So all of a sudden that exposure is gone for retirement accounts meaning uh, the returns are going to be smaller um, for us than they were maybe for pension people. Um, I wonder if you'll see changes in regulation or new products that allow retail investors to get in in a safe way. It's been interesting to watch this. So at Cambridge Associates, we're, we're globally focused, right? So we're Explain to us really what Cambridge Associates does. I mean, you've been there for quite a while now. <laughs> yes, quite a while. Thank you. Thank you for being gracious there. Cambridge Associates, so we, we advise and manage capital on behalf of endowments and foundations, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and families. So we, we really advise and invest on behalf of a broad swath of Family offices. Of people. Yeah, family yeah. offices. And we operate globally. One of the fun things about being able to operate globally is you can watch to your, to your retail exposure to private equity in different parts of the world. They're trying to crack this nut themselves in different ways. And so depending on where you are, there is opportunity to participate in publicly traded private equity funds or be able to participate in a 
a slice of private equity as provided to you by a government entity. So they're, they're interesting things that I think U.S. investors are looking at for ways to innovate and bring that here or to sort it out in a way that's American. Can you talk just, just briefly about private credit? Matt and I hear a lot more about that than we did. Uh, just It's just so hot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Private, so private credit, as, as you're probably aware, the area exploded after the GFC, right? And, and really became quite significant. And the amount of direct, private direct lending exploded tenfold. I think it was 130 billion in volume back in 08. It's now upwards of 1.3 trillion in volume today. Mm -hmm. So it, it's definitely a, a blooming space, right? And one of the reasons for that is you, because of the GFC, you had some of the changes in the regulations that really had to move lending out of banks. Yep. Into where? Into private credit. And here comes the growth of that particular swath mm. of industry. So private credit's been around for a while. It's gotten much more interesting right now, obviously, because interest rates. Yep. Right. All right, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. Very fascinating story. Andrea Auerbach, head of private investments at Cambridge Associates, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We welcome now our Bloomberg TV viewers and radio listeners. I'm Shanali Basak, and joining me now is Brian Armstrong, Coinbase's CEO. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. You recently made this big, interesting bet as a centralized exchange on decentralization. Mm. A year or so ago, you know, decentralization was a big worry for traditional financial players, but more so now, there are a lot of concerns about the space. So what is the case for traditional financial players to care about DeFi? Yeah, well, we're definitely excited about DeFi at Coinbase, and we want to make sure we help build the future of this technology here in America. Actually, a lot of traditional financial services firms are integrating this technology. I mean, everybody from you know, JP Morgan, Visa and MasterCard, Franklin Templeton, they're all have, they have projects and, and teams internally working on how to integrate crypto into their services. And I think the reason for that is that 80% you know, of Americans are not happy with the current financial system as it is today. They think it's, it's too slow, the fees are too high, it doesn't serve everybody equally, and a lot of the technology was built 40 years ago, the laws were 100 years ago, and so people are really excited about how crypto as a technology can help improve and update the financial system. And that's why, that's why we're here at Coinbase, we want to make sure that we enable that as well. There are still near-term challenges, and which are the biggest among them? Are they the idea of hacks and any vulnerabilities in the system, or is it the regulatory environment in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, my number one priority this year is the policy environment. So we need to make sure that that gets to a good place in the U.S. You know, the, the rest of the world has actually embraced crypto. We've seen all the major financial hubs, Singapore and Hong Kong and London, and, you know, the EU just passed comprehensive crypto legislation. So really what I believe should happen in the United States is that we need... Uh, we need a clear rule book so that this industry can be built here. You know, we don't want it to be like 5G or semiconductors that went offshore. It's actually a matter of national security. We get the future of the, the financial system built here inside the United States. And so I've been spending more time in D.C. Um, here in New York. But in D.C. in particular, we're, we're trying to meet with the relevant folks that could help draft legislation so Congress can come in and, and pass comprehensive legislation. Before we get to the Washington of it all, I want to still look out five years from now because there are a lot of financial players, as you say, that are looking at tokenization. A lot of it's happening in the private markets. To the extent that you think traditional securities can be tokenized, five years from now, are you working with collaborating with any banks to get to that point? Mm. Yeah, so crypto is many different things, right? There's, there are crypto securities, which we believe there should be a robust market for that in the U.S. In fact, 
We acquired a broker-dealer license. It's still dormant right now, but we'd like to work with the SEC to activate that and create a healthy market structure to trade crypto securities. Now, you know, of the thousand assets we've looked at at Coinbase, you know, 800 of them we've rejected. We don't think we have maybe their securities. 200 or so of them we have listed on our platform. We believe those are commodities. And so we're going to continue to build that piece of our business. We're regulated by the CFTC, for instance, and make sure we grow that piece as well. But crypto is many things. It's, it's commodities, it's securities, it's stable coins, it's artwork, it's decentralized identity systems. And so it's uh, tough for people to wrap their head around, but it's ultimately going to have many different regulators. You know, before we get to the regulatory part of this, too, we were talking kind of about traditional financial players and what role they have in this place, in this system. What kind of relationship do you have to high-frequency trading firms? Mm. Prior to the implosion of FTX, you saw them working, for example, with IEX. Have you had any conversations with them or any others? Well, we're always talking with different firms out there and other exchanges that may want to trade crypto in various ways. You know, we can act as a brokerage or exchange, a custodian. We can play different roles in different market structures. And in financial services, you often see, um, you know, a company that may compete on one product. They're actually collaborators on another product. And so we want to make sure that we're helping integrate crypto into all aspects of the financial system so we can update the financial system. So you were talking about the SEC, the CFTC, the SEC's crackdowns as of late in particular. You work with a lot of institutions. Hedge funds had been very much getting into crypto prior to last year. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the SEC's crackdown is starting to scare any of them away. Well, in a way, actually, I think Coinbase has been a net beneficiary of this because there's essentially a flight to quality. Um, you know, Coinbase, we're, we're a public company. We have audited, audited financial statements. We're a qualified custodian. I mean, we're basically the choice, you know, based here in the U.S. that hedge funds are going to want to work with. And so in Q4, I mentioned this on our earnings call, actually, that we saw um, an increase in the number of institutions onboarding to Coinbase. Now, a lot of them have, haven't deployed substantial capital to crypto yet in this market environment. They're kind of waiting and seeing. But it's great to see them onboarding, and that's kind of a coiled spring that I think could unleash a lot of potential in the next uh, in the next market change. Hedge funds still flocking to crypto. Listen, we are resetting here just really quickly here with uh, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase for our Bloomberg television and radio listeners. Uh, getting into the complicated regulatory environment now. Stable coins. You were talking about how there are multiple regulators for the crypto industry, but who should be the primary re regulator for stable coins? And is there a case for them to be overseen more like money market funds? Mm. Well, I think Congress ultimately is the one that's going to create the laws in the United States, right? And so we could probably use new legislation, new laws around how stablecoins should be regulated. Uh, I don't presume to tell them how to do that, but I think some of the key things are uncontroversial. I mean, we need to have one-to-one uh, -one backing of assets behind these stablecoins. We need to have audited financial statements uh, to make sure the firms issuing these are, are doing a good job. So these are just kind of basic good practices, and I think a stablecoin bill is one of the first things that could really help um, move, you know, get consensus and move things forward in D.C. To the extent you still have concerns around the stablecoin industry, what would they be? Um, I mean, as broadly as a concept, I don't have concerns about it. There may be individual stablecoins which are better or worse. I mean, we actually recently delisted uh, you know, BUSD as an example. And the reason we did that was you know, Paxos had gotten, who's the issuer of, of BUSD, had been kind of ordered to stop minting it. So we were concerned about liquidity issues for our customers. But, you know, we're always evaluating through our internal processes, um, different stable coins, different assets, and updating when we see new information that comes to light. I'm curious about your own way of using stable coins. Recently in the fourth quarter, it showed that in your filings, it showed that USDC has doubled in your holdings prior to the quarter before. Why is that the case? Um, well, okay, so USDC is, is growing quite a lot, and I think actually USDC is 
uh, it's the best answer to a stable coin in the United States, right? Um, it's, it's issued by Circle, which is a US-based company. Um, we're, we're in partnership with them, and we want to see that grow. Um, it's also been a really nice source of um, subscription and services revenue for us, which is, you know, to, in contrast to trading fees, which are quite volatile. We've seen um, in our Q4 earnings that our subscription and services revenue is now 47% of Coinbase's revenue, almost half. And so that's allowing us to build a more predictable business with a diversified set of revenue streams. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite bullish on USD coin, and I, I feel like that's a good solution for the U.S. Does that look a lot more like traditional banking? Not necessarily, no. I mean, in traditional, there's many differences. You know, um, in traditional banking, they, you know, there's fractional reserve, they have banking licenses, there's capital requirements. Um, everything in USD coin is backed 100%. There's no fractional reserve. So I think of USD coin as a really important tool to help payments be more efficient globally. Um, it's helping provide you know, access to you know, something like a bank account, but it could be self-custodial for many people around the world who don't have access to a stable currency. Um, it can improve even you know, a lot of DeFi, which you mentioned at the beginning, um, the, the trading pairs are, are denominated in USD coin. So these are all good things which are an important part of the ecosystem. So let's move to the staking part of the business yeah. here, because uh, you have been concerned, you've voiced concerns, you and your colleagues, about the SEC's definition of staking and how they've approached staking. Are you prepared to fight the SEC on any front if you need to when it comes to the staking world? Yeah, so, I mean, we recently saw there was a uh, settlement with Kraken, that's another exchange out there, and they have what they called a staking product. It was kind of more of a yield product. But, um, you know, in Coinbase's case, our staking product is not a security. Um, there's many differences. I mean, we customers never turn over their assets to Coinbase, for instance. They're, they're always in the customer's possession, and we're really just providing a service that passes through those coins to help them um, you know, participate in staking, which is a decentralized protocol. So um, that's an important part of you know, the crypto economy that we want to make sure that we um, ensure that that's out there. And you know, we're prepared to defend that in court if we need to, but you know, we never, we're never looking for a fight. We want to work collaboratively with regulators all over the world. Um, but, you know, we have to follow rule of law, and in this case, I think we're well within the law. Given the stance that SEC has been taking regarding defining certain assets as securities, is there anything that you think will need to get to that point? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the SEC has expressed their view about what is a security, and they've taken kind of an expansive view of that. Um, I think, you know, Coinbase, we've evaluated over a thousand different assets, and I, as I mentioned earlier, 800 of them we've rejected. And we do think they have some properties of being a security, so we don't trade those today. Another 200 or so of them we do trade today, and we feel that those are commodities. So, you know, look, I think as a, as a CEO, we want to basically just have a clear rule book, right? And if a clear rules are published, we're happy to follow it. And if, and if those rules change, you know, we're happy to follow those. Um, but I think, you know, when we, when we became a public company, we explained uh, to the SEC in our S1 filing and uh, in dozens of meetings that we've had with the SEC, I think we work pretty collaboratively with them. We've explained our business to them many times, including in our S1, and you know, they approved us to become a public company. So we'll continue working with regulators all over the world about where the boundaries are on what's a commodity, what's a security, or what is something else. Resetting once more for our Bloomberg radio and television audiences in conversation with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. You know, we're talking about the SEC and state regulators as well. You know, in regulatory filings, you've noted that you've received investigative subpoenas from the SEC and state regulators. How and when do you get those resolved? Yeah, well, subpoenas are really just requests for information, right? And so we're in dialogue with regulators, not only here in the U.S. at the state and federal level, but really around the world. I mean, um, we're in Europe, European markets and, you know, in Singapore and in 
Australia, et cetera, Canada, many different markets around the world. So I think subpoenas are an important part of the process. That's, that's them asking us a question and saying, we'd like more information on this, and we're happy to do that. It sounds like, it sounds like, there was a tension between the SEC and the industry before. It sounds like some of those tensions have boiled up after FTX. I'm wondering if you think that the conversations between Coinbase and the SEC in particular have gotten more or less contentious over mm. the years. I think we have a good relationship with the SEC commissioners and staff, and um, you know I've met with the chair as well. And so we're going to continue to invest in those relationships. I would like us to find a way to bring crypto. I think this is what they want too. Our, our interests are aligned. We want to bring this this industry within the regulatory perimeter so that we have good consumer protection, but we also preserve the innovation potential of this. And, and as I said earlier, you know 80% of Americans want the financial system to be updated, and this is the most important technology I'm aware of that can help do that. So you and your colleagues have also voiced a lot of concerns. Today you voiced concerns about kind of more of the crypto industry moving offshore. Mm -hmm. Draw us a picture here of what happens in 5, 10, 20 years if the digital asset landscape exists mostly outside of the United States Yeah. in exchanges that are not based here. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think that would be a terrible mistake for the United States. I mean, look at what's happening with AI, right? That's an important technology trend where um, it's becoming a, mo a matter of national security, right, that some of these things are built in the U.S. Or we saw it in the past with 5G or with semiconductors. And so if we have this really powerful technology, cryptocurrency, that has the potential to update the financial system and improve it in so many ways, how can we sit on the sidelines in America and say, oh, okay, well, we're going to let you know, the EU pass comprehensive legislation and so it'll be built there, and we're going to let the UAE and you know, London and Singapore and Hong Kong I mean, this is America. We, we need to be a technology hub. We need to be a financial hub. And the, the future of this industry needs to be built right here in America. With CME Group's e-mini and micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of e-mini and micro-sized contracts in equity indices, interest rates, crypto, metals, FX, and energy. Learn more at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I want to get to the bottom of this. I'm just reading the, the Bloomberg News reporting here and some China's economy shows strong recovery as COVID zero era ends. That's the headline. So when we talk China, we talk Leland uh, Miller from the China Beige Book, absolute expert, our go-to source here. So Leland, we had some manufacturing purchase managing managers index rose to 52.6 last month, uh, the highest reading since April of 2012. They had some other good data out there. Are you buying it? Well, yeah, uh, the economy is recovering, but but 
very important is understanding what your base of comparison is. You know, if you look at from year ago levels, everything is still down. If you look at from the fourth quarter of 2022, everything is up. From month on month, January to February, some things are up and some things are down. So it's telling a very confusing story right now, and that's even more convoluted because, of course, January, February is, is, is difficult with Lunar New Year and people were down with COVID. And so this has been a very difficult time to understand. But, yes, you are seeing the, uh, the beginnings of a recovery right now. So it doesn't seem to be supporting all the commodities that I was hoping to see jump. You know, when China reopens, I was like, okay, so 1.4 billion people are now going to go to the gas station. But we haven't seen a huge gain in oil. Why do you think that is? Well, I think people are just trying to understand what this recovery is going to look like. Certainly in the second quarter, you're going to see, you know, all systems go. You're going to see businesses start to reinvest and borrow and hire. You're going to see some measure of, of, of revenge consumer spending probably. Uh, and then, you know, you also have, have uh, funds and policy support flowing into property for the first time in a long while. So things will look better. But I think people aren't convinced that this is going to be, you know, a longer sustainable recovery. They want to see what the policy support looks like. When we look at our data, there is credit flowing into the property sector the first time in a while. We're, you know, we are seeing policy support to property in particular. So, so they, I think some of these things will jump in the coming weeks. But you know, it's, it's, it's a story about 2023, and markets aren't convinced yet that, that the government's going to be behind the, the economy. Hey, Leland, I, I don't know if you have any data on this, but I have seen nothing really definitive about the reopening here. This seems to be the best, quickest, least painful reopening of all time. Do you have any sense of how bad it got in China, if at all, as it relates to infections, deaths, that type of thing? Because it seems to be like it, I think they had nothing. stuffed up hospitals and crematoriums that were I, I don't know. Uh, That's what I hear. Full. I don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah, of course. I Look, they, they completely glossed over all the difficulties from getting from November to here. You know, they, we don't know what the death counts are. Nobody knows except the Chinese government. But we do track, you know, the uh, COVID's and, uh, COVID uh, spread in our, in our corporate networks. And what we were picking up is a lot more reports of COVID spread in February than what the government was, was letting on. Everyone's obsessed with these subway indicators that they, you know, insist made you know the show the economy you know recovering and peaking and and, and getting back on step in uh, in January we saw covid flow through the economy in December in January still in February and so yes the recovery is coming yes you're already seeing improvement from from the end of last year but the economy is not back up the the story that the government about peaking last month that's just not what we're seeing so you know this is a much slower process and, and it's a lot uglier underneath the underneath the hood than they're admitting but you know it's it's hard to tell when, when they're you know, not admitting to anything behind the scenes. But I guess if I was an emerging market investor, if I was a China investor, no matter how it's getting done, don't I have to be bullish on China over the next several well, you years? You want to buy in before everyone else buys exactly. in, Exactly. Right? I think you need to be bullish on the next several months. I wouldn't be bullish on the next several years because what you're seeing right now is a is a recovery that will happen in the second quarter. It could go from two to four quarters, could uh, continue on. But then, you know, the, this is a cyclical bounce back, and the cyclical bounce back takes place. As, uh, with the backdrop of a long-term structural slowdown, none of these problems that we saw before are, are taken care of. None of them are being dealt with. You're just seeing a cyclical, cyclical bounce back from a very bad COVID zero recession. So you're going to see better data for the most of 2023, but 2023 is going to be a head fake in terms of China's growth. Okay. We're not going back to the status quo ante. Things are slowing down going forward.
We had a story yesterday that Apple suppliers are moving out, investing in Vietnam, looking at India. Is that going to be a big story across manufacturing for China from now from now forward? Yeah, it's a huge story. I mean, these these are difficulties. They're, they're, the supply chains, some supply chains are being pulled out of China. They you know they have had extraordinary manufacturing export growth for years, mostly because of COVID, but also because you know the, the you know. The, a lot of people were buying around the world. Now you've got more of a global economic recession potentially looming. You know, you've got difficulties with supply chains and being pulled out of China. So it's going to be a lot harder sledding in you know the manufacturing world. The hope from Beijing is that they have other sectors of the economy pick up, you know, pick up and and, and drive growth. But it's very unclear how how domestic consumption is going to do that because they're not doing anything to support domestic consumption being a long-term structural driver of the economy. All right, Leland, great stuff. Really appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. You are absolutely uh, one of our go-to people as it relates to China, both from a geopolitical perspective, but also obviously from the economic perspective. China Beige Book International, Leland Miller, he's the CEO there. And the China Beige Book folks, they have real primary data that they get from their network of people on the ground. They don't rely on government statistics. And so that's what I think really makes uh, China Beige Book and Leland Miller really com uh, compelling to chat with. So Paul, as an equities guy, right, an investment banker from the days of yore, thinks everyone else is a geek. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who looks at fixed income. Uh, George Patterson, he's the CIO of, of PGM Quantitative Solutions. George is kind enough to join us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. George, just start us off and tell us how you guys at PGM Quantitative Solutions, how do you guys invest capital? Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, great to be here. Um, our view is always uh, trying to understand what the client's needs are. And, and really for us, we always think longer term and we always think, fun we always think fundamentals driven. So, you know, what, what, are the, what are the factors, what are the trends that are going to be rewarded over the next full cycle? And, you know, how are we best positioned for that? Um, and, and really for the clients, it really, you know, there's a lot of from our perspective, there's a lot of customization to really build a portfolio that meets a client's needs. Do you guys needs. have a black box that spits out equities and fixed income options for you? If well, it's so, actually not a box. It's a triangle. Okay. It's a, cu uh, it's a triangle, and uh, it's not black. It's yellow. Okay. <laughs> um, no, uh, so, the, so I, you know, I'm very uh, – I, I love to say that, you know, again, from a quantitative perspective, we do have a model that's expressed in mathematics, but it is – our model is very fundamentally driven. So the types of factors that we look at are going to be very fundamentally based. Okay. Things like earnings, or, you know, earnings to price or earnings-based metrics, EBITDA metrics, cash flow, um, you know, quality of the of a board. Um, so we're really looking at things that fundamentals fundamental investors look at, but we're doing it in a systematic way, and that allows us to just be very disciplined. That, it, it allows us to be disciplined. It also allows us to take the emotion out of the process. I want to get to what you're investing in. Um, but before that, how did you get to this point in your career? I mean, you went to MIT, so I get the math part of it. But then you um, did a PhD in physics. Um, how do you get from there to Wall Street, essentially? Yep. Uh, so it was uh, it was the mid '90s, um, and uh, when I was graduating from school, it was a it was a um, recession, or we were emerging from a recession, and I had an opportunity lined up. So I actually, in addition to doing those things, I actually worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Whoa! So I can say Same. that I'm a honest to goodness <laughs> rocket scientist. 
Um, however, at the time, I did a lot of uh, soul searching about where, you know, what did I want to do, and, and, I, and I knew I was not going to do a traditional career. Um, and, and I w looked at a couple of different things, but I went to a presentation on, at a, on quantitative investments, and there was a fellow there who was, was presenting some of his research, and I kept pointing out errors in what he did. And uh, we had a chat afterwards, and uh, he said, well, you know, we're hiring, but this is, this is in uh, San Francisco. I was in Los Angeles at the time. And next thing I know, I was working at uh, you know, BZW, Barclays Global Investors. Yep. That is awesome. Yeah. So, and from there to Chief Investment Officer at PGM Quantitative Solutions, how would you differentiate um, quantitative investing from, I think there must not be a short leap to AI, which is so popular to talk about right now. But you'd basically plug things into a model. I guess the model just doesn't learn by itself. So, so it re, so the way I like to think about it. So if you think about the like fi world of fixed income, right? There's people have there's like this segmentation idea. There's people who focus on the long end of the curve. There's people who focus on the short end of the curve. There's people who focus in the middle. Quants are very much the same way. There are people who look at longer term trends. There's kind of mid horizon trends, and then there's ultra high frequency things. So the challenge with AI is that you need data to train the models. And you know, the, the great thing about science in general is that if you have, you can do an experiment and if you don't have enough data, you just do the experiment again. Um, and you can generate lots of data um, to, to train a model. And you can do that for short horizon models. It's very hard to do it. We just don't have enough data to do it for long horizon models. There's some areas where it makes sense, but it really depends where, where you're targeting within quant. Quant is kind of like saying, um, you know, you know, my, uh, you know, my boyfriend plays sports, but I don't know what sport it is. There's a lot of difference between mm -hmm. a hockey player and a soccer player and a football player. It's the same thing with quant. There's a lot of different subspecialties within there. So where are you? Where's your model focused? So, what, and what and what are you coming up with? Tell us about some of the ideas that you've generated. So, so all of our ideas are really implemented by buying baskets of securities. We're not buying, you know, we're not building a concentrated portfolio. We're building a diversified portfolio, and for us, everything has to have some sort of root in um, economic, uh, you know, economic or behavioral. Um, fundamentals like we need to understand why something works and the reason we do that and we have a very high bar for putting things into our models is because we want to be we want to be able to be patient when the market is either going against us or in, in, in times of a crisis because that's the one time you don't want to panic so we spend a lot of time trying to understand why why do the models we have work what is behind them and and that allows us to be patient um, it means that, you know, like we're, we, we are, you know, we do use valuation-based based metrics, and you've probably heard a lot, there was, there was a period of time that everyone was talking about, is value dead, is value dead, and then value comes back. I think this is the kind of thing, I can't tell you how many times in my career I've seen somebody put on a trade, and it goes against them, and it goes against them, and it goes against them. They decide to take the trade off, and the next day it starts working. <laughs> so you have to be patient in this business. Um, it, it, it is... It is one that will test you on a daily basis. Are you buying equities here? Are they too rich? If, are you, if you're buying equities, are you buying U.S. equities, international equities? 
So, so, so from a multi-asset allocation perspective, we're, we're generally much more positive outside the U.S. The okay. U.S. has great fundamentals. As we all know, the economy is firing on all cylinders, but U.S. equities do look expensive on a number of different metrics. So we do tend to favor non-U.S., whether it be EFA or EM, a lot of interesting opportunities out there. In terms of um, the U.S., what do you see this market telling us about um, you know, the economy, the possibility of a coming recession, you know, earnings seem to paint a far worse picture than the data that we're getting from unemployment and prices paid, ISM, PMIs, like everything looks so great. And then you look at earnings and they not only were, were disappointing, but expectations are for them to disappoint more throughout the year. Yeah, but look, look where we've come, look where we come from, right? You know, we came from COVID where like literally, you know, unemployment, you know, was going through the roof. I mean, the economy came to a stop, right? Planes basically stopped flying. Cruise ships, like, basically couldn't take passengers on. So the economy literally came to a stop. And we, you know, the, the economy was rescued with, with stimulus. And it, it, there was kind of a very strong rebound, particularly in certain sector of the economy, the stay-at-home, the technology stocks. And what you're seeing now is kind of like the, this is, I, I don't want to say it's the hangover, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of repercussions, you know. So, the, like, the U.S. economy is actually very healthy, but, like, we're seeing a bit of a reversal in some of the corporate earnings. I, I don't think it's a surprise. I think this is all given. This is but all I just mean we're pricing uh, 18 times earnings is great. Yep. You know, that's not a hangover. This is if no, it's I not. love that kind of hangover. <laughs> no, you know? no. I, well, it was even better during uh, in 20, in, you know, after post COVID. Right. Yeah. I mean, when everything was up, I mean, just look at the total return of the market post COVID. It was phenomenal from the bottom to the top it was like it was an amazing um, was an amazing thing. Now, there are parts of the economy that move a little slower, like housing. Right. Like housing. We saw prices, you know, dramatically change over the course of you know over the course of covid that's going to take longer housing market just does not adapt that quickly um but the u.s economy is very healthy it's just that equities are expensive um i i am a little concerned that the fed is going to have to continue raising rates um as i said i'm a rocket scientist and uh, <laughs> not an economist by tra training but every indication we've seen apart from a handful of senior apart from a handful of large tech companies that have announced some layoffs it's still hard to find good people. I think companies want to hold on to their employees. All right, good stuff. George Patterson, uh, we really appreciate getting your thoughts there. George Patterson, he's a chief uh, investment officer for PGM Quantitative uh, Solutions, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. George, you're based in Boston? Uh, Boston and uh, Newark, New Jersey. There we go. Boom. All right, Boston. Only uh, the nicest. Pizza. Only the nicest towns on the East Coast. Exactly. I love Newark. The Iron Bound, all that good stuff. Uh, great restaurants. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to get over to someone who knows what's going down in commodities. Yeah. And from a city that has been historically an amazing commodities hub. Angela Zeidler joins us, Vice President of Investor Relations over at Arubis. They are the largest copper producer in Europe, the largest copper recycler um, worldwide, and they're based in Hamburg. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. First Thank of all- Thank you very much for hosting me here. Thank I, you very much. Is your, is your family historically from Hamburg? Because Seidler sounds to me like someone who makes things out of silk. And I think of Hamburg mm -hmm. as this- commodities hub so is this is this where it comes from 
No, actually not. I'm, I'm sorry for that. And actually, it's the name of my husband, so I don't really know where it comes from. <laughs> but as, as you said, <laughs> as you said, um, I'm located in Hamburg. It's almost evening here, so good morning to you. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> it, it, you, you've, you're later in the day there. Um, let's talk about the commodities that, that you um, move around, make and move around. Yeah. I would have expected the China reopening, and Paul and I have been talking about this for months now, um, uh, since the COVID zero kind of pivot that they made, I would have expected that to drive up commodities prices across the board. What does Dr. Copper look like right now? What is Dr. Copper telling us? <laughs> well, actually, um, I think we have to, well, I first of all want to talk about a European view, and then I come to a Chinese view because, of course, we, we, we are looking at the markets globally. So the European demand for copper is very healthy. You know, we are one of the leading copper producers in Europe and, and globally. So here, and driven by the energy green energy transition, the electronic vehicles and all of this, the copper is really copper demand in Europe is really healthy. We see today that the copper price again goes went up over nine thousand US dollar per ton, meaning that the, the mine supply of, of of concentrate materials where we generate our copper from is is in a good situation, and also the recycling markets here in Europe where we of course are engaged also. In. All right. So when you're um, when you're uh... When, when you go to visit Oliver Bluma in Wolfsburg, is is he putting in orders for copper that he can now afford to pay for because he doesn't need to fork out so much cash for gas? I mean, there was an expectation that that would be a huge problem. Now it's not. And Volkswagen aims to be the biggest maker of electric vehicles in the world. I think that is that is counting in for them as well. But from our point of view, we see that the, the construction industry is uh, demand is increasing, and automotive, from our today's perspective, is stable. But you are right; energy prices are coming down in Europe. We had a mild winter here, for God's sake. So energy prices are going down, and this, of course, will will give a tailwind to all the the the, the um, let's say commodities consuming um, companies. But so, on the other hand side, if, if you look at it globally, and, and um, we've got a lot of customers um, which, which have um, maybe facing supply chain disruption. So currently we don't see it, but um, um, I'm, we are happy here in our European market. Demand is stable and healthy for us. Situation might be different, and you mentioned that at the beginning in China. We see, as, as you mentioned, that the, the, the demand didn't pick up as we early in the year expected, but that might be uh, because of um, we, we had a long um, Chinese New Year, and after COVID, the, the markets are slowly picking up, but not in that direction which we maybe earlier the year expected. <clears throat> Angela, talk to us about the uh, the recycling business, the copper recycling marketplace. If you could just kind of lay out the parameters, what that market looks like, uh, kind of in, in kind of how you see that developing. Actually, uh, we last year and um, announced that we are doing a huge recycling investment. Well, for us, a huge recycling investment in the U.S. in Augusta, in Georgia. We will invest. 640 million euros in a big plant of recycling materials. And we are doing this 
not because of the, the, the lower energy prices in the U.S., that's nice as well. But the market for recycling material is extremely growing in the United States, and Arubis will be the first recycling company investing there in building the first recycling plant in the U.S. So big opportunity for us in a fast-growing market. What kind of uh, energy usage does it take to recycle copper? Actually, doesn't matter. Um, um, well, we, we have different energy. We, we have gas. We have um, um, well, everything you, you can imagine we do have. And uh, we were facing at the beginning of the year a high energy increase, especially price increase, especially in Germany. Situation in other European countries where we produce as well were different. But in the U.S., of course, this is much more competitive for us, the energy situation, than we have it here because you are using nuclear power plants as well. And um, uh, this is something uh, which, you know, probably uh, don't want to have here in Germany anymore. So, uh, Angela, I know your first quarter earnings, your profit fell, uh, and I know it's due in part to inflation and higher energy prices. Talk to us about the cost side of your business. What are the big costs and, and kind of what are the trends there? Well, costs, of course, is um, personal costs is, is the biggest factor here. And as we are facing a high inflation rate, even in Germany, they announced just that we are at 8.7 percent. Um, so all over Europe, uh, this is something we have to face, but energy costs are highest factor. And if you look at uh, last year, our fiscal year end, end of September, the, the energy costs almost doubled. We, we see now that it is coming up and we, we have in our forecast a little bit room here. So um, currently the situation is better and we are very well supplied with energy with long-term contracts and it is not at that risk position as we've seen it before. And I talked to a lot of investors last year about the situation of energy in Germany and I can say we are now much more relaxed on that side. And, and China, the reopening, we, were gonna, we put a pin in that. So let's go back. Is it expected to be, drive demand in a big way? Actually, I would say, of course, it will. Um, Arubis is not engaged in any kind of direct business to China, but we are, of course, dependent because 50% of the global demand in copper is uh, in China, is coming from China. So the Chinese are, of course, driving the copper price. And we and the mining industry especially, we don't have any mines. Um, if, if they earn good money by a high copper price, it is good for us. They create a lot of copper concentrate, and this is perfect for us on the other hand side. So we are, we are looking at China very closely, have good contacts over there. But currently we see that the demand is still weak and the premiums right. for refined copper are low. All right, Angela, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Angela Seidler. Vice President of Investor Relations for Arubis. Uh, it is the largest copper producer in Europe and the largest copper recycler worldwide. They're based in Hamburg, Germany. So excellent getting the uh, European perspective on that commodity. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.